That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. How's your week been, Ben? Well, it's good. I'm, uh, I'm doing better than you are, Tom, uh, for the sake of listeners, I should say. Tom is, uh, I can see Tom now, and his arm is in a sling, and uh, he's smiling <laughs> despite a fractured arm, uh, which was sustained, Tom, in the course of... I'm afraid it was ice skating. I've determined that I am not, I'm neither Christopher Dean nor Jane Torville. This is very, very clear to me. And I'm not 13-year-old anymore where I can whiz around at a birthday treat on the ice rink. Um, no way. I, I just collapsed backwards. And before I knew it, I was, um, <laughs> I was being picked up <laughs> and having my blood pressure taken. <laughs> one, uh, one snowflake too many, Tom, has undone you. I, well, yeah, I've, I've become a snowflake. I've become a snowflake, but I have to say, I mean, it was the uh, it was uh, it was all good in the end. The uh, the NHS worked very very well for me. It was uh, pretty quick, in, given we were with we're in the middle of Christmas time. Uh, everyone's out ice skating. In fact, I think that was half the problem. You go to an ice rink. Uh, I expect anywhere in the country at the moment, everyone's saying, "Let's do this for Christmas." It was crowded. It was full of people, all thankfully going in the same direction. Um, but, uh, when I went down, I went down and, uh, but the, the, the NHS did me, did me proud and I was home by midnight. So it was an evening, it was an evening, uh, ice rink excursion. Uh, but I was home by midnight with, uh, with x-rays and everything. So, um, I just need to go through the pain now. Not bad going by A&E standards, uh, these days. Well, you've put me off ice skating. Not, not that, at all. Not that I needed discouraging. Um, but we are, um... <laughs> We're in our final episode of the year, aren't we? 2023, coming to a close. Uh, and we thought we'd yeah. just have a bit of a chat about some big news that we will be... Uh, well, it's going to be a theme of the next year. And this is the uh, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, which will be coming into force in 2024. Um, and that's going to make a, a big change to uh, students, academics, visiting speakers at universities. And I think it will change the mood music around freedom of speech at university. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, and we also want to do a little bit of a retrospective, uh, not just on the past year, uh, but also on some of our biggest cases, uh, our biggest wins to date since the FSU was founded back in 2020. So uh, we're going to start looking forward, I think, aren't we, Tom? We're going to talk about the Higher Education Act yeah. and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So there's a there's a consultation that I think opened today at the Office for Students. Uh, two two parts to the consultation. The first part uh, concerns the complaint scheme in general, and the second concerns uh, the student unions and um, uh, how student unions are going to be regulated. Uh, but it's it's hit the press today with quite an impact because. We, we've talked before about this new law coming in, and we've talked before about uh, Professor Arif Ahmed, who's going to be, who is the first uh, director for freedom of speech and academic freedom. But what's interesting in these consultations is the um, they, they they make it clear as 
to what penalties might be put in place for complaints that are upheld. And the two things that, that the press is talking about at the moment are that there will be naming and shaming of individual institutions or student unions uh, where complaints have been upheld. So they have been, they would have, they will be effectively be institutions who have not protected free speech and have had to go through a, a complaints process and be found against. So the first is naming and shaming. But the second, interestingly, is there'll be financial penalties for these institutions as well. So it's 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 good to see that this is being taken seriously. These proposals are being consulted upon. Uh, they'll come into force on the first of August next year. Um, but we, I think, really can't understate how much potential there is here for a change in the mood music around free speech and academic freedom in our higher education sector. Um, we talked about the act, but it's like all these things, it's how it's going to be implemented. And this consultation is a good sort of first fruits, I think, of, of serious implementation. It will make a, it should make a real difference and make universities think twice or even three times before stomping on free speech. I think that the naming and shaming aspect of uh, of what the OFS is is talking about is going to be really important because, well, I was I was listening to Professor Doug Stokes at Exeter, uh, who we're going to talk about again in a moment, actually, aren't we? Uh, he was talking about the the, mm. the, the mafia like approach of groups like Stonewall, who sort of turn up uh, at universities and operate like a, a sort of protection racket uh, with uh, with league tables on on uh, LGBTQIA plus or various other diversity and inclusion strands. And of course, there's this huge pressure among among universities um, to tick the boxes on those sorts of schemes um, and to paint themselves in the most attractive light possible. Um, and there, there has been this sort of arms race of nonsense, uh, which has driven the entire sector into this uh, this cul-de-sac to mix metaphors um, of uh, this American imported diversity uh, equity inclusion, um, which has pretty thoroughly demolished freedom of speech and academic freedom at universities. I really just in the last three years, particularly, it's been an extraordinarily rapid uh, process. I mean, it, it's probably fair to say it was gradual and then it was sudden, um, but but it's been dramatic. Uh, I'm very, very sudden in the last three years post Black Lives Matter and, and with respect to trans rights particularly. Um, so I think the naming and shaming is really important because if you're a if you're a university mm. administrator, if you're the bursar of an Oxford college or um, the senior tutor or whatever, um, and you see that there is going to be this huge reputational risk um, where you have students and parents filling in UCAS forms and, and choosing universities and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they can see on the Office for Students websites that uh, X, Y, and Z university uh, are repeatedly getting themselves in trouble um, for uh, investigating academics or disciplining students on spurious grounds or whatever. That you know that's really going to put you off. So if you're if you're in charge of, a, of uh, admissions at, at a university, you're in charge of the the comms office or whatever. Um, this is something really that's going to concern you, I think. So that's good, and it's it's a pity. Obviously, we've we've got to the point where the where the sector needs to be scared into promoting academic freedom and freedom of speech. But I, but given that we are there, I think this will be a very effective mm. means of doing that. Well, one of the things we'd speak about the uh, around about the diversity and inclusion industry, diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity. Uh, equality and inclusion, however we put it. One of the things we come back to again and again, Ben, is the fact that that, that is not a regulated 
industry. It's come up, it's bubbled up out of nowhere over the last 10, 15 years. And it's infected, like almost like a Japanese knotweed. It's infected the corporate world. It's infected the civil service and the public sector. It's, it's infected the educational sector. And none of it's regulated. There's very little diversity of thought, uh, which is at root a really big problem. It, in many ways, this will now be a regulation, at least of the outcomes of DNI. It's not a. It's not an underlying regulation of the DNI industry. It's not a direct regulation of the DNI industry, but it may well have that effect because where DNI is having an outcome or creating an outcome that is suppressing free speech, it's suppressing academic freedom. There is now effectively a regulatory process to stop that happening. Um, and one of the good things it says in the consultation as well is that, of course, certainly the complaints that goes through the Office for Students, the OFS, is free. So students can make their complaints and they don't yeah. have to pay bucket loads of money. If, if they, they may need to go to the courts and they do have redress to the courts and that does cost money. But in the first instance, this OFS process won't require those deep pockets. So I, I think this is kind of a neat way, perhaps, of beginning regulation of this new monstrous industry that's come into being. The the point about it being free is to go to go through the complaints process is so important. I mean that that's something we really really fought for throughout the passage uh, of the of the bill through Parliament and our colleagues in legislative affairs really fought for. Uh, that, that is essential. I think the point about about this being sort of indirect regulation of the uh, equality, diversity, inclusion industry is really important because um, if you turn up at a university campus now with your snake oil uh, EDI training course. Um, actually, you have a valueless product suddenly. Mm. Uh, mm. At the stroke of a pen, it, it, you, your product is is completely worthless because it strikes the wrong balance uh, between protecting students from harassment on the grounds of their protected characteristics and the university's duty to have particular regard to freedom of speech. Um, so I, I think that's, that's important. And that also perhaps opens the possibility um, and this may be uh, overly optimistic uh, of having a trickle down effect beyond higher education, yeah. um, because it, it, it yeah. changes the mood music, as I said, within universities, but also beyond. And as you've just described, as we've all seen with our own eyes, this stuff has it has been a lab leak from uh, universities that, that spread out through through the rest of society. So perhaps the reverse can happen. Um, that there can be this cultural change, but it's it's going to be a bloody long process, isn't it? I mean, it's not it's not just the case of getting this act and and therefore we've won. Uh, it, it's going to be a long process that will take a decade, perhaps. Well, I love that description of a lab leak. It's been a lab leak from the educational sector into the rest of society. That is a really neat and perfect description. Actually, we are currently. Um, working on a submission for the um there's a there's another consultation on diversity equity and inclusion uh for the fca the financial conduct authority and the pra the prudential regulatory authority uh and we're looking to, to make a submission to that as well and we're going to make exactly the same points that this industry is not regulated and um you know the, the, this i think in the consultation they're proposing that uh, the lack of DNI should be deemed as a non-financial risk on the risk registers of financial firms. So suddenly it's going to be 
formally out there as, as, as a risk, a lack of DNI. And there is a very narrow sense in which I fully understand that, you know, this idea of um, making sure that we get more of a gender balance in the boardroom, you know, that, that kind of is where it all started and makes a lot of sense. Uh, and of course, the problem is it's become this terribly oppressive, um, much broader uh, idea and concept. Um, and so I think one of the main points we're going to make is that, sure, call it a non-financial risk, but you can't do that and also not regulate the DNI that's coming into these workplaces. Because if you're suddenly going to treat, treat lack of DNI as a non-financial risk, we've really got to sort out the DNI industry that is creating that DNI in financial firms. So that's that's a, we're still working exactly what wording we're going to put in and how we're going to thrash it through um, and the deadlines coming up for our submission. But that's the sort of thinking we're going to have to put behind it, which is um, you know this unregulated industry. So it's great news. It's great news for the for the higher education uh, sector, I think. Um, and certainly, um, it also reminded me, Ben, of um, the, the sort of the monetary side of this, the fact that institutions, universities may be um, fined, so there may be a financial penalty for for having complaints upheld against them, reminded me of a conversation we had a few episodes back where alumni for free speech had sent out a whole bunch of freedom of information requests on how much they were spending on freedom of speech versus how much they were spending on DNI or EDI. And um, I went back and had a look at that. And of course, it, that's the, the, currently, based on these freedom of information requests, they found that it was about 214 times as much money appeared to be being spent uh, on EDI as opposed to free speech protection. Well, let's get that factor down. Uh, this is a very good first step in that direction. It really is. No, no prizes, by the way, for guessing uh, which side of that particular equation was going to win. Then, um, yeah, and I think I think we're we're on our on our way to doing that. Um, and again, this is this is not this is not actually stripping back the requirements for um, protecting people on the basis of their protected characteristics. And I I think are pretty non controversial um, actually uh, when they're kept proportionate. Uh, and when they are reasonable and fair, um, it, it's not about undoing that, but it is about striking a balance. And I think this is what the the act allows us to start to do. Um, so I think that's that's very exciting. That that will be something next year that that substantially changes uh, the debate about freedom of speech um, in universities, and hopefully, as as we've just said, in in society more widely. Um, but this this point about the OFS, the Office for Students, drawing up a sort of naughty list, uh, which is an excellent idea. Um, of course, Tom, we have our own naughty list, don't we, at the FSU? We've been building up, in the course of helping the 2,250 people that have, that have come to us for assistance, we've built up a pretty gigantic data set of, of council culture and how it functions and who's affected and why and what sort of things will get you in trouble. So we, we want to talk yeah. about that, don't we? We do, and uh, and and sort of what I think will be interesting is to see as these um, naughty lists are published by the Office for Students after the first of August next year, when complaints start to roll in, um, how it stacks up with what we've seen. So in our in our data, 
we've looked at the top five institutions uh, where we've had education, these are sort of educational institutions, colleges, universities, and such like, where we've had the most cases. And um, the top five offenders are Durham, where we've had 7.5% of our cases, Cambridge, 6% of our cases, Oxford, 5% of our cases, Exeter, 3% of our cases, and the Open University, 2% of our cases. And you can see, if you were quickly cumulatively adding those up, um, that we're pretty much up at 20, 25% of our cases relate to those top five institutions, which is a lot given that um, we've, seen, we've seen over 2,250 cases in total in our casework uh, and around a fifth of those relating to higher educational institutions. So what strikes me about those, and I think we talked about this before, Ben, is so many of those are Russell Group, yeah. you know, world-class institutions, esteemed, Elite. long-standing, yeah. multiple-centuries standing institutions. And they're, they're the ones that have really been rolling in with all of these cases since we set ourselves up in February 2020. Well, you know my view of that, Tom. I think it's just the 2023 version of knowing which way to pass the port at high table. I think it, it's, it's so much of it is about uh, fashion and going along with what you think people like you ought to think. Um, and so I, I think the elite Russell Group universities are particularly vulnerable. Also, I think this is true of uh, the most elite public schools as well, um, rather even more so than the state sector or, or minor public schools. Um, and it is something about this kind of litmus test for entering into uh, this new elite, as, as Matt Goodwin calls it, um, that you've got to have the manners right. You've got to know uh, which which protected characteristics, which protected groups and minorities are the, are the sacred ones. Um, you've got to know the liturgy on trans rights and so on. Um, and therefore these institutions you could say are responding quite rationally to a demand that the their junior common rooms are saying well look we need we need more training on diversity and inclusion we need to make sure that uh, every tuesday and thursday and hall is serving vegan food we need whatever etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so of course that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the more those institutions lean that way the more they attract students who want those things which means there's more pressure on the institutions to go that way even further um, and so there is this sort of feedback uh, loop. So this, again, I mean, we, we've spoken about the act of length, but 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 that is something that will um, begin to write that that imbalance. But yeah, isn't it interesting? Those elite universities. But one thing I would add to that is um, the alumni. So because these so many of these elite universities have pretty interesting alumni. From those institutions over the last 40, yeah. 50 years, some of our greatest movers and shakers have emerged. And and, and go back to this point that money talks. Uh, I think that, for example, the fact that Durham has been in the lights to the extent that it has been, I think um, famously uh, it's had quite a few of its most high-profile alumni say, I'm not going to give money to you anymore. Um, and that that means perhaps now as these institutions wake up and realize that some of the sources of their funds are going to be potentially shut off that will be another positive in terms of they get in the lights they and and now they get onto the the public list of the office for students potentially um yeah the alumni the alumni are watching never forget the alumni that they don't just write checks 
for for no reason. They want to know where that money's going. They probably want their name quite rightly on a building or against a course. Fine, no no problem. Uh, but if they feel that the money is going to an institution that bears little to no resemblance to the one they left 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, it'll dry up. Um, so I think, I think, you know, go woke, go broke is a little bit in the background here as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah. So let's see what the numbers are like for, for next year. I was, I just did a clip on, uh, talk TV and I was, there was a discussion about Israel Palestine and I was saying that we've been contacted by a lot of academics in the last few weeks who have joined the free speech union or, or been a member for a long time, but only just had cause to contact us um, because of uh, disciplinary action or investigation or hostility that they, they fear is going to turn into an investigation um, who, who've needed our assistance. So um, all of this stuff is is rumbling away. And I think the other, the other thing I'd say about that, Tom, is that 2020, of course, is that febrile um, year of, of Black Lives Matter and then trans and so on. Um, and to some extent, you can you can see, you can read the tea leaves and, and have an idea of what the next big issue is going to be and uh, the environment and uh, you guys and so on, uh, I, I think, are a, a top contender for the next free speech uh, war zone. But... Um, we don't know what it's going to be, do we? I mean, it could be something that, that really is not on our radar yet or something that's a sort of obscure thing in our data that we've seen a little bit that's suddenly going to uh, burst out into the public domain. So uh, B Corps, which we we talked about, you did your research on, that's, that's mm. something that is likely to be a recurring thing. So who knows? I think so. I think um, we talked about carbon literacy training as well. And I yep. suspect, like, like as you say, as net zero... Um, although it's being rowed back on a little now w with a new government, who knows, um, I think carbon literacy training and all of these accreditation schemes, which put institutions under pressure to, uh, to, to change their processes, to, uh, train their employees and to put those into performance goals and such like. All of that is such a has a, such a stifling effect, and yet these institutions are tripping over themselves for the accreditation. I mean, most websites now you go to, and it's not just so we've talked about B Corp or carbon literacy. It's not just those. It's it's just it's ten or fifteen different accreditations or certifications, and it really feels a little bit like um, a school sports day sometimes when everyone gets a little certificate, everyone gets a medal, and everyone gets a trophy. You know, no company, no institution now wants to put their website up without having a whole row or two rows of, by the way, we've got these, this, 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 and this. And then you lift up the lid on those things, and they are not they are not um, without consequence for people, customers, suppliers, and employees of those of those organisations in terms of their free speech, or indeed in terms of the self censorship that may need to go on in order for them to maintain the kite mark. So I find that that whole area is fascinating in and of itself, um, and 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 a whole discussion in and of itself. We want to talk about some of our more high-profile higher education cases, don't we? That that's sort of the theme mm. of this episode, this end-of-year episode. Um, and uh, there were well, I'll, I'm going to start on a on a positive note on this. So um, we had 
two students contact us in uh, quite quick uh, succession um, who are organizing, uh, these are two completely different events. Uh, one one was a talk at Bristol uh, by a group called Women Talk Back uh, with uh, Akira Reindorf, Casey, and an eminent panel of uh, uh, legal feminist legal scholars. Uh, and then there was a screening at St. John's College, Cambridge, being organized by uh, Charlie Bentley Astor uh, to show Birth Gap, Childless World, the film by Stephen Shaw. Um, and both of these events were running into the sort of uh, soft veto that we have seen so many times from universities where there's uh, you know, objections about it taking place in exam season because the protesters are going to be too disruptive and therefore your event can't go on. So we see the, the heckler's veto there uh, in its preemptive form. Um, and all the stuff about security costs and, and uh, venue hire, which on a student budget, you know, security bill of four or five hundred pounds is completely unaffordable, even for for many student societies. Um, <clears throat> but in both of those cases, uh, the Free Speech Union was able to step in via our uh, McTaggart program, which uh, gives funding to students to promote free speech activities. So. Uh, talking about changing the the mood, mood music with the act. This is another thing we're doing where um, students are coming to us saying that I'd love to do this. I need some money to do it. Um, and in some cases, getting 100, 200, 250 people to come along uh, on, on a Friday night and go to a debate or, or listen to a podcast or uh, whatever the whatever the thing they're doing is. Um, and so that, I think, is very encouraging. We've had a really good take up for that. And uh, we've we've given some grants to some really impressive applicants. And the timing, I remember back in May when we made those two awards, the McTaggart program was yeah. just being rolled out. So we'd just got sign-off. Yeah. The, the ink was still wet, I think, on the you know the giant magnet right. charter that we must have had to create the McTaggart program. Uh, and we put it in, you know, on the wall and and um and and there it was. And straight off the bat, within I think it was a day or two. We had these two events who needed that money. And so we sort of fast-tracked them through as best we could, made sure they matched the criterion of the program. And as a result, there was the woman, Women Talk Back. It was the other was the other event, so as well as the film showing, the yep, Women Talk Back right. in uh, in um, in Bristol. It was uh, by the Bristol Feminists organization there. Um, yep. We were able to help or the McTaggart program was able to fund those events and make them happen. Uh, so the timing yeah. was, was just brilliant. I remember you scrabbling around Ben, uh, to sort of write the checks and <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. sure that we dotted the I's and crossed the T's yeah. and that this was, this was, uh, you know, but it was, it was so good to, to sort of see that, that happen in quick succession. Um, and I'm sure as we go into 2024, I, I mean, I can say for sure we, we are receiving more and more applications, aren't we? Aren't we? So if there are yeah, any listeners who know of, um, you know, academic, um, uh, in, uh, university related events or free speech societies or free speech if, um, uh, initiatives, then do read the, all the materials on the McTaggart program and do apply because we want to put that money to good use. And also, uh, the, the only thing I'd add to that is don't assume it has to be a kind of, uh, you know, an existing debating society or something traditional. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're very happy to fund that sort of activity. Um, but the stuff we're getting increasingly is really quite novel. It's not necessarily the kind of thing that we'd have been anticipating. It, it's students saying, I've got this really good idea for 
a podcast or an exhibition or whatever mm. um, that, that relates to freedom of expression. So it's really interesting what people are coming to us with, actually. I saw on uh, Twitter last week that Laura Favaro, who's, who's been in this uh, pretty long-running uh, battle, uh, has had some success in that her research uh, on the... So she'd be doing research, if you're not familiar, on the uh, trans debate and gender-critical feminists and the silencing of opposition and so on, and people's experiences of, of being participants in that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, she was then dealing with a complaint that had been made against her and part of the, of the, of the large battle that she's been fighting, one aspect of it, uh, has been that her research... Uh, she's basically cut off from her research from the the original material that, that that she gathered, and she now has got access to some of that material back, which is 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 good. Uh, that that's good progress. Um, so that's very encouraging. One thing I her. just wanted to say about um, yeah, go on about this uh, situation we're now in with the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act in place, with Professor Arif Ahmed in place. Um, is the, on the 10th of October, and we, we mentioned this before, he made his first speech as the director for Freedom of Speech and Academic Freedom. And it's really well worth reading that speech in full, I think. Anyone who's fascinated, interested in following this whole area of academic freedom and uh, freedom of speech and of freedom of expression in the educational sector, uh, because he lays everything out, including the statistics around self-censorship, how people think about free speech, how students are thinking about free speech. And there are a couple of parts of that that are really potent and powerful and crisp. Um, it's, a, it's a great speech. But the one that the, the two paragraphs that I thought really jumped out at me uh, were as follows. It makes no difference whether you're in favor of Brexit or against it. It makes no difference at all what side you take on statues or pronouns or colonialism or abortion or animal rights or ULES. You can castigate the monarchy or defend it. You can argue that Britain is fundamentally racist or that it never was. You can speak or write as a Marxist, a post-colonial theorist, a gender-critical feminist, or anything else if you do it within the law. And he, he lays it out so clearly. So it's, it's really heartening to see some crystal clear free speech thinking now sitting at the top of the Office for Students. In other words, at the top of the regulator for the whole sector in the UK. And I think that's a huge win. We have a fantastic new free speech czar. We have a fantastic piece of legislation. We wish we didn't need it, but we have it. And it's going to have teeth. I think that's what comes out of this consultation that kicked off. It's going to have teeth. So I think as we head into the end of the year, we can be really hopeful that maybe, now was it Churchill said this? It's not the end of the beginning, but the beginning of the end. <laughs> For this particular area in the UK, higher education, um, maybe it's the end of the beginning. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that wonderful Churchillian note, shall we leave it there and wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And yes. uh, looking forward to 2024. Yes, have a wonderful Christmas and uh, we will speak to you again in the new year. Goodbye. Goodbye.